I can't see everybody. There they are. I see Jody. Grant, what's up? Say hi. And they are in town. That's a big deal. Welcome. Southbridge, welcome. We're glad you're here. See, I can't even see to the fourth row because of these lights, but it's uh, great to see your faces, not just on the screen, but uh, the rest of you, if you would uh, just notice in your worship program, if you're interested in taking one of those trips, we're going to keep sending folks. Um, there's an informational meeting coming up on January 9th, and then there's also a luncheon. Do you want to ask the Wallers, what is it like? Maybe um, just got stirring in your heart. Of what, what is it like for folks that get called to another place and uh, just have questions about, I want to be able to tell my kids about this, or maybe we'll do this someday, or I just want to know what it was like for you in your journey. How did you know before you met each other, those separate calls that you mentioned? Uh, that lunch would be a great time uh, to be able to see, hear some of what God's doing there and what God has done to bring them to this point. And uh, we love them. And I put up some signs for our Christmas Eve service, Grant, and prayed that people would come to Christ um, as a direct result of those signs. And uh, some of you know Grant from the very beginning of our, our core group as a church. He was the guy who put up signs before we were told it was against the law to put them up right in Briar Creek. Um, Grant did that, so our missionary is breaking the law. Isn't that cool? And uh, he would pray that people would come to Christ as a result of putting those signs up. And uh, we did get some testimonies of people actually coming to Christ as a result of those signs. So exciting. Great to have you back, see your face, and just remember uh, those days of our story. And uh, we're, we're glad that you're here. And glad for each one of you that you're here. And uh, just a special welcome to you. Today's a special day. We're starting a new series that's going to go for a while. So you didn't miss day one. So isn't that great? You've already accomplished something. We haven't even done anything yet. Um, we're going to be going through the book of Acts. It's 28 chapters, and we're not going to go a chapter a week. It's going to go a little bit longer than that. Um, and today we're going to start in verse 1, and it's a series that we're calling Movement. And we're going to pray that God does a, a movement in our hearts and our midst and, Lord willing, in our church and multiple churches around our city as we go through this time, as we just pray for this city and for people to come to Christ and, and our Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all over the world, um, just as we even heard people come to Christ in Madagascar and that God would stir and move in our hearts about being about what he wants us to be about. And so we're going to pray today, and then we're going to get into the text. So let's pray together ask God to speak to us as we continue to worship him. Father, we, uh, we are just humbled that we get to meet together and uh, to praise your name, that you've done something in our midst that would make us want to come together today. And for some, that might be having grown up and always doing this, and that's just part of your grace and protection. And for others, uh, today, for some reason, you decided to move in their hearts that they would come come to a place that they would consider a church and, and be with what they would consider religious people. And for others, that you've radically transformed their lives, that they know you and want to know you more and want to be with your believers and want to be on mission for you. And Father, wherever we're at on the spectrum, I thank you that we're here today. I thank you that we have a place, the freedom to come into a building and sing songs and be covered from the elements and have air conditioning and all those types of things. But more than anything, we thank you for your grace to save us. We thank you that you've given us your word to instruct us. I pray that you'd instruct us this morning. I pray that you would teach us. I pray as we open up your scriptures uh, that you'd show us things, show me even things from this passage of scripture that I've never seen before. I just thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, today we're beginning this series. I, I told you the title, Movement, which is kind of a cool term, I think. When I hear movement, I think, well, that's something I'd want to be a part of, a movement. That, that sounds good. But before we jump into any of that stuff, we've got to talk about what does that mean? What are we talking about when we say movement? Because that term's been used loosely for history for lots of different things. We talk about the civil rights movement. We think about American history. We talk about the anti-slavery movement. We talk about women's rights movements. There are various movements that are out there for various things. And all the time when you look at those, they kind of have a theme. It's people gathered together around a common belief with a desired result. And for some, the desired result was equality. For other people, it was freedom. For various different things, depending on which movement you look at. So what are we talking about when we use this term, talking about the church? 
Because that's what the book of Acts is really all about, is the church. It's the first history book on the church ever. It's the first 30 years of church history, of what God did after he resurrected, ascended into heaven as Jesus Christ, what he did after that. And so what are we talking about when we talk about the church being a movement? And what we're talking about is a group of people gathered together around a common belief with a desired result of radical obedience to God. That's what we mean when we're talking about a movement. A movement of God where his people are gathered around a common belief. And that common belief is the gospel that Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, not only lived a great life, he wasn't just a moral teacher, he wasn't just somebody to be followed as an example, but he was God in the flesh and lived a perfect life. And when he died on the cross, he paid for your sins and for my sins. But not only that, he rose from the dead. When he died on the cross, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and he offers us life. And then we are to then live lives of radical obedience in response to that. And so that common belief we're surrounded around is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the radical obedience of the lives that we live on mission for him. And each one of us, when we become a believer in Jesus, have a part in God's story and God's plan in this age called the church age, we all have a part. And just even using that language, that we have a part of something, taps into a, a, a need, a want, I'm not sure exactly what the right word is to even use, that's in each one of our souls, this longing that we have, to be a part of something. And every person has it. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us what it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God's placed eternity in all of our hearts. As non-believers, we see people longing for something that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And even as believers, and we've talked about this before, we have a longing because Christ hasn't come back yet. Some of his promises haven't been fulfilled yet. They will be fulfilled when he comes back the second time. It says we still have a longing for him, for more of him. And we all want to be a part of something in the process in the meantime. And you see it. People want to be parts of clubs. You see all the different subcultures in our society. And you think about it, whether it's you know, the hipsters or the nerds. And if you don't know what either one of those titles mean, that you're just out of it. And so you're in that group. And so there's all the different groups and subcultures. Your friends all go to the movies. They don't invite you. You feel left out because you want to be a part. We want to be a part of a club. We want to be part of the library club, the book club, the country club, the whatever memberships there are for shopping clubs. There's all these clubs out there that people want to be a part of something. You desire to be a part of something. I saw a micro picture of this with my kids the other day. They were playing. They didn't know I was listening to them in the other room. And they were out in the hallway. And we've got four little girls. Three of them were playing together. My oldest daughter was kind of corralling them. And they were going to put on a play. And she said, all right, do you want to do a musical or a regular play? And she's kind of, you know, taking the feedback from the audience. And, and they're talking about these things. They decide they're going to do a regular play. They're not going to do a musical. And now they've got to figure out who's going to play what part. And so my oldest daughter says, well, I'll be the princess. <laughs> I'll be the star of the story. Wasn't that so nice of her? And then the other two, they want a part two. And so, they, you know, what am I going to be? Who am I going to be? And so then she looks at our three-year-old, and she says, you'll be Maleficent, which is an evil, wicked character in Disney. But she said, you'll be Maleficent the puppy. You're going to be a dog in the story. And then she looks at the other sister and says, and you'll be the director. <laughs> okay, so you get to be the princess, and there's like a kind of part over here, and you can kind of say what's going on, although I'm calling all the, all the shots at this point. So everybody was in, and everybody had a part. So everything's fixed. You know what's unique when we talk about our role as believers in Jesus Christ is that all of us become a part of something when we place our faith in Jesus. It's the church. But that doesn't just mean a membership list like you're on a library catalog or you're at the country club or you're on some shopping club. You become part of the body of Christ. And every one of us has a part. Every one of us has a role to play in the church. The body of Christ. And here's the great news. You don't get to be the star. That's Jesus Christ. You're not the director. That's God the Father. And here's even better news. You're not some evil dog off to the side either. And Luke tells us what our role is in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at that today. 
an overarching role that every believer has in the body of Christ. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts. It's right after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts in the New Testament. And we're going to start reading just in verse 1. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to go through the first 11 verses today, and then we'll just kind of keep going uh, week by week through this book. And uh, what's happening here is this book I mentioned is written by a guy named Luke. It sounds like a familiar name if you've read the New Testament before, because I mentioned the Gospel of Luke. It's the same guy. The guy who writes the Gospel of Luke is also the guy who writes the book of Acts. And so Acts is really like part two of the Gospel of Luke. And what is the Gospel of Luke? Well, it's the story of the life and works of Jesus Christ. But the story doesn't end with his death for our sins and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. It continues on in what we call the church. And that's what the book of Acts is all about, is the first 30 years of the church. And what we see is that the church was a movement. It was revolutionary, but it didn't just change nations and political systems, but it changed individuals' lives. And really, who we're talking to when we do this series in the book of Acts is individual believers in Jesus Christ who are part of the church. Now, if non-believers come over the next however long we're in this series, that's great. They're going to get to hear what it's like to be a part of the church. They're going to get to see pictures, little uh, narratives from time to time of what happened in the early church, and then we'll apply it to our lives and talk about those things. But really, this is for believers. And so if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need a relationship with Jesus. And what we're talking about really is a a family talk here as we look at the book of Acts, because we're talking about what is your role in this family. And Luke talks about it. Look at it with me in Acts chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 8 to get started. It's in my former book, Theophilus, and he's talking about the gospel of Luke. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And if you want to go a little bit further into that, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter to look at. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, they get one more question, right? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know, the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. You don't need to know that, but here's what you do need to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here what he tells them is, you have a role. There's 11 of these guys left. One of them's committed suicide. He's got 12 closest followers in the former book, in the Gospel of Luke. One of them's gone, Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He's committed suicide. He's out of the story. There's 11 guys here now, and he says, listen, you've got a role in the story. You're going to be my witnesses, and it's going to happen, starting here in Jerusalem, and it's going to spread further to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you read the book of Acts, it goes all the way to the place of Rome. But the story doesn't stop there, which is interesting, because it's, the book of Acts is still being written. It's being written through us because the book of Acts is about the church, and we're still living in the church age. And you know what the reality is, is that not only do these disciples have a role in the story, but so do we. The implication of what's said in this passage of Scripture is that every believer has a part to play in God's church. Every believer, not every person, but every believer has a part to play in God's church. And that is our first point, and our main point today. Every believer has a part in God's church. And every person has a longing to be a part of something, right? I mentioned that to you. I was reading this week on a website called the, the Experience Project, some statements, and I want to give you some direct quotes from people. 
Sometimes you think that I just kind of talk about people and what they think and make it up, but listen to it from their own words. These are exact quotes. A woman named Eileen said this one. It's on the screen, lots of words, but I'll read it. I can't seem to shake the feeling that my life has no meaning. When I think about what I'm doing in life, I can't think of a single thing I could tell my children or grandchildren that would make them feel proud. I want to be a part of something greater than myself, and I want to make a difference and have people know who I am. I just need to figure out how to do this. Now. Now would be a good time. Another person said this. I lay in my bed often, think to myself how much I want to be a part of something. Many ideas flow through my deep thoughts. I surf the internet to find something, such a place I can be a part of. There is something out there for me. That's a statement. It's like they know there's something out there. Can you hear that longing? Well, this guy probably struck me the most. His screen name was Lost Guy 42 um, The grammar's a little choppy here, but I want to read it to you, um, similar to the way that was on, on there. It says, uh, I'm a 22-year-old guy from Chicago. I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. I'm tired of being the same. I'm lost. Please help me. There's this longing that we all have. These are apparently non-believers. But even as believers, there's a longing for something. But as a believer, what happens is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ is you become a part of something bigger than yourself. You become a part of the church, which is the body of Christ. Not just a member on some list in some file folder in a manila folder somewhere that people forget until you leave and you've got to send it to someplace else. and all. It's not that. You're part of the body of Christ. And you have a part to play in the body of Christ, every one of us. And there are different passages that talk to us about the specific gifts and roles and experiences and all those different things that come into factor that are unique to each one of us. But in this passage, we see the general overarching one for all of us. We all have a role to play, a part to play in God's church. If you're a believer, not every person, every believer in Jesus Christ has a part to play in God's church. And that's what Luke talks to us about in the book of Acts. You look at it here, go back to verse 1 with me. In my former book, The Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, it's the same guy that he wrote to if you read Luke 1, 1 through 4. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Does that strike you at all? That Jesus began to do and to teach? You ever think to yourself, like, other scripture that comes to mind as you're reading scripture? And what about when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished? That's kind of a big statement in scripture. But here Luke says that it's when It's all the stuff that Jesus began to do and to teach. See, when Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. What he's talking about is the work of redemption. That he did all the work that needed to be done for your sins to be paid for, for my sins to be paid for. There's nothing that you or I do that adds to that or can contribute to that. Anything we try to do is actually taking away from what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross for us. We don't add to the work of redemption. That was finished. But this statement here by Luke implies that that doesn't mean that Jesus' work is finished. That he's done working in this world. That he's done working not only in us, but through us in this world. And he's still working through us. And the way he's working through us is through the church. Because we live in what we talked about a few weeks ago, between the times. Some of you may remember that. And by between the times, we're talking about between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we live between those times, it's what the Bible calls the church age. And that's the way that God's working in this world now during this time period is in the church age. And so when you look at the New Testament, what you see is after Jesus' first coming, when he ascends back up into heaven, he starts the church in the book of Acts, which then transitions into the rest of the New Testament. And all the epistles that are written to either pastors that are pastoring churches or written to specific churches. It's the church age. And so as messed up as it can be, here's the deal. The church 
is God's plan. And that's his plan A. There is no plan B. And the church is the only organization in the world that gets the promise. Matthew chapter 16 says this. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. On this rock I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's the only organization in the world. There's no other. There's other great ministries out there. No parachurch ministry has this promise. No other group that you know gets together and studies the Bible has this promise. The church has a promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the reality is, you know, some people just don't like the church, right? You ever heard this statement? I love Jesus. I hate the church. And there's books that have been written with that title, by the way. So it's not an original statement. If you said it or you know someone that said it, that would be like if you came up to me today in the lobby and said to me, Scott, I love you. I hate your wife. Let me just tell you something. We're not going to become immediate friends. <laughs> if you say that, I'm going to be offended if you say that statement. But do you realize to say that is like saying to Jesus, I love you, I hate your bride? Because the church is the bride of Christ. We see in the, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 25, husbands, you're commanded, love your wives as Christ loves the church. He gave himself. He died for the church. Because how do you say you love someone and you don't love what they love? And you love someone and you're going to then offensively say to them, but I hate the very thing that you died for? I hate your bride? See, it's messed up. I get it. I understand that's why people say that type of statement. I've been hurt by the church, had bad experiences at the church. And sometimes you think, you know, he's a professional religious guy and he's got to say all this stuff up here. Get it. You don't think there's ever times where I want to walk away from the church? I mean, just get you know, people's opinions, whatever, just sick of the politicizing. Who cares? I'm done. Taking my Bible, my family, maybe a couple friends, and we're just done. And I think I know better than God's plan. But then I've got to ask myself, do I believe God's word? Because there's no way that you can read God's word and deny that his plan is the church, i.e. the book of Acts. <laughs> there's 28 chapters specifically dedicated to talking about that. And so I've got to go with, do I believe that what he says is true? And since I do, then what's the plan? How do you want to do this? And that's what he talks about in this passage of Scripture. He began to do a work in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's where the movement began, implied he's continuing to do this work, and we're going to talk about it for 28 chapters here. And he continues to talk about it here in this passage. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And now he's going to talk about what happens in the life of the church. And so what is the church? Well, let me tell you what the church is. It's a group of people gathered together around a common set of beliefs. And the beliefs are the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins, paid for those sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, and gives us a plan and a mission to live on. And the question is, will we live in the radical obedience to that? If we do, what does that look like? Well, you go through the books that are written to these churches and you start looking at the commands that are given for people how to live together. Things like this, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another. And brotherly love. Honor one another's above yourselves. And so, just a reality check for each one of us. I want you to do something, a little exercise that'll be uncomfortable, uh, especially, you know, kind of a dark room here and the way that our setup is. Look around this room right now. You devoted to the people that you're sitting by. Do you even know <laughs> the people that you're sitting by? And I realize that new people come and go every week and all that. I totally get that. It can happen. But are you devoted to those people? I mean, devoted, devoted takes time. That takes resources. That takes energy. It takes effort on your part to make, you know, take initiative, to ask people to do stuff, spend time together, all those types of things. It might cost money, all that. Are you devoted to the people that you go to church with? Because in America, a lot of times we get this idea that church is an event that we attend, not something that we're a part of. 
And the church is something that you're a part of. You're devoted. You'd consider one another better than yourself. That was the second part of that verse. It's tough stuff. Now, we try to provide opportunities for people to do this. We know that it's not perfect. We know we don't do it perfectly as a church. Look at your worship program. Got e-groups, different styles of groups based on different types of things, your gifting and wiredness that might happen, relationship-oriented groups. We've got engaged mission-oriented groups, uh, discipleship-oriented groups. We've got all of our service opportunities. You're rubbing shoulders with people. We're trying to provide opportunities for people to be with one another. You can start being in a relationship with one another. And you can start being committed to one another. Now, there's not one person that does it for the whole church, and we all kind of do it together as we're devoted with one another. And so the question for each one of us, we talk about whether we are the church. So are we devoted to one another? Do we love one another? Do we confess sin to one another? Do we carry one another's burdens? Do we encourage one another? Do we love one another well? It's all that stuff. That's the church. And that's what Luke's writing about in this book. And he gives us examples of, in chapter 1, he just talks about the overarching role, though. Until the day he was taken up into heaven, talking about Jesus, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period, multiple times, over 40 days, and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And then what Luke does in verse 4 is he focuses in on one specific occasion, and it happens to be the last occasion that Jesus appears to them over that 40-day period after his death and resurrection. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, there's a convincing proof. (laughs) It's not a ghost. He's eating with them. He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, and you get one question with Jesus, right? You spent three years with him. You get one more question. Lord, is now the time? Are Are you restoring Israel now? And you see the tension that's there. As the disciples realized, even then, from day 41, that we're living between the times, between his first coming and his second coming, and we want you to just come back now. But we know there's a reason why he doesn't. And we know there's a reason why he's waiting. You can study the New Testament to see why. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. Don't get distracted with stuff that's not your business to know. And here's some newsflash for people that are with times and dates. He can come back at any moment. Don't worry about the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's his job. But here's your job. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's your role. You're a witness. That's the overarching statement for every believer that's part of the church. If you're a believer, you're part of the church, part of the body of Christ, and here's your role. You're a witness. Different passages of Scripture Talk about giftings and uniquenesses and experiences and placement and live and move, have your being, all that stuff. But every one of us is a witness. Now, I know that my saying that, especially those of you who've been in church for a little while, causes different people to think different things. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, that's talking about evangelism. I'm not gifted in evangelism. That's not my gift. Let me just say this, and I'm trying to say it gently. Sometimes I can come up real direct. There's nothing in here about gifts. We're not talking about gifts. We're talking about a command. Evangelism is not a gift. You see in Ephesians chapter 4 that it's mentioned as an office in the church. But evangelism is not a gift. Evangelism is a command in Scripture. It's interesting how the longer we're on church, the better we can get at explaining our disobedience. Evangelism is part of a role of every believer. To say that that's not my gift would be like saying, love's not really my gift. I'm just kind of a jerk to people. It's just I'm my spiritual gift of jerkiness. It makes everybody else look better. You know, it's my way to serve. And so you come up with all these ways to explain stuff. But the reality is, it's, 
I'm not talking about it. It would be like saying that sexual purity is not my gift or uh, just any <laughs> giving is not my gift. Yeah, some people are better at it. Some people seem to have exceptional results when they do those things. Some people seem to have a special gifting in it. You're true, but all of us have a responsibility. All of us have a role as a witness. looks different for every person based on gifting and ability and placement and all those things, but all of us have this role. Some of you might hear witness and you might think we're newer to this deal. Witness, I thought that was like a weird cult. They go door to door, two by two, and they've got like comic book looking things. They try to scare you into their cult. That's not what we're talking about here. There is one of those. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about the true church. He's talking about genuine believers that believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and believe he's the only way to heaven. And they're presenting that to the world. And so what a witness is, is this. A witness is somebody that testifies, that proclaims what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced. John says it like this in his epistle in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We tell you about what we've experienced ourselves. That's what a witness is. And so I want to ask you a question today and the wording of the question is very important. Are you a witness? Are you a witness. Notice I didn't say, do you witness? I'm not asking you, have you ever presented the facts of the gospel to someone? Because okay, I could tell all of us here, I'll give you three facts. We're all sinners. Jesus Christ died for our sin. You have to ask him to be your savior in order to be in the family of God. There's your three facts. And we could send everybody out two by two, door to door. And we're not doing that. Don't get scared. But we're, we're, we could do that today. You could all go out and say, knock, knock, knock. Here's the three facts. Here's the th-. You're not a witness then. You're a presenter of information. A witness is someone who testifies to the things that they know to be true from their own experiences. And so I'm asking you the question, not do you witness, but are you at your core being, as part of who you are, a witness of Jesus Christ? Imagine it like this. Imagine a horrible crime takes place. It shouldn't be hard, right? Considering what's happened in the news recently, the Connecticut deal, stuff that's happened in Ohio, India you watch the news, you know what I'm talking about. Pick whatever crime bothers you. Imagine that took place. Now, probably your emotions as a believer is you want justice. You want things that are right to take place. You want whoever is guilty to be punished. That's just kind of the way we work as people. You want there to be evidence so that it's clear. You want the right thing to happen. You just don't want anybody punished. Um, You you, you probably um, would desire to help in some way if you can possibly help. So imagine this. Imagine the prosecuting attorney for that case, your case, calls you up and says, we want you to come and be a witness. What do you say? You want the truth to come out. You want someone to pay. You want the right thing to be done. In fact, you've probably seen enough information on the news at this point that you could probably present information when called upon at trial. But can you be a witness? And the reality is that As far as I know, we can't because we weren't there. We didn't experience it. We didn't see it. We didn't hear it. We weren't part of the environment. We don't know what happened. I mean, we've seen information, and the reality is that's what a lot of people in church are like. They've been around enough sermons. They've heard enough information. They've heard enough other people tell their testimony, their proclamation of witness, their life-changing experiences, that they could put together pieces of information to give a presentation. But are they a witness? And maybe the reason why 95% of Christians have never led anyone to Christ 
is because we're sending people out to present information that's not true at their core. Or maybe it's because 95% of people that attend churches aren't Christians. I don't know. Hopefully that's offensive to some of you. But I don't honestly know the information. Why? The question you have to ask yourself is a soul-searching question. Are you a witness? So before we talk about anything that we would do, we've got to talk about who we are. Now, if we are a witness, then that will influence what we do. It's like these guys say in Acts chapter 4 and verse 20, the very guys that are getting this information from Jesus, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 20 say, we have to talk about this stuff. It says, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and we've heard, what's happened in our lives, what we've experienced. We have to talk about that. And to be a witness implies it doesn't just mean you live a life that's being transformed. It doesn't just mean those things that would be true. That has to be true. But it doesn't just mean that. It has to mean you have to talk about it eventually. People just know because they say, man, he is awesome. I should trust Jesus. That guy really loves his wife. Man, I need to trust Jesus. I got sin. I got... You have to talk about these things eventually. And when you talk about them, do you realize what a difference you're making? You know, Grant talks about he's got this burden to go to people that haven't heard about Jesus before. And you know, 60-some people come to Christ and 40-some people come to Christ. Oh, amazing. He's saving their lives. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25 says that a, a true witness, a truthful witness, saves lives. Best analogy I've ever heard of this before is given by an atheist, a guy named Pendulette. I shared this in a different context with you as a church one time before. You can see a video of him on uh, YouTube if you look it up on your own. A guy named Pendulette from Penn & Teller. is a magician with another guy at one time. For some reason, now they bring him on CNN as a political analyst. I don't know why, but they do. Um, he's a well-known atheist. He's written uh, some books about what it's like being an atheist. And he talks about on YouTube one time, a guy, he called, talks about proselytizing him, evangelizing him, somebody trying to share the gospel with him. And it's interesting, some of the observations he makes. He says, no, this guy was genuine. He's authentic. He wasn't one of those weirdos. <laughs> so you've had other experiences, <laughs> is the idea that I got when I, I heard him say that. And he talks about this guy gave him a Bible, tells him about Jesus Christ, and then Penn starts to go off and talk about his thoughts about the whole experience. And he says a few lines that really stuck out to me. One of the lines was this, how much do you have to hate someone? He said, if you really believe this stuff, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them this information? And then here's the analogy he gave. It's probably the best analogy I've ever heard. He says, if you believe that someone's about to get hit by a truck and you're telling them this information, it doesn't matter if they believe it. At some point, you just tackle them. And then he says, as an atheist, this is way more important than that. He's an atheist and he gets it. See, we do more than just save their physical lives. You're talking about saving souls of people. And that's our role as believers in Jesus Christ. We're his witnesses. And so we have a role. We're not the star of the story. We're not the director. But we're not some insignificant evil thing that's just off to the side either. We've got a significant role in the story. And God's story and the phase of the story he's in is called the church age. And we're part of the church. And so we've got a significant part in the church as his witnesses. But there's encouraging news in the passage too. We've also got a promise. Because every believer in this passage of scripture has a promise too. Look at it, same verse, verse 8. It's an important verse in this whole book. It's the theme of the entire book. But you will receive power. There's your promise. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we're going to see the narrative of when that takes place in the church in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. This power is going to come. Now let me ask you this question. Why do you need power? Simple answer, you're not capable. 
what we're talking about doing is something that we're not capable of doing. And a lot of times as Christians, we talk about, you know, God's only going to give us the things that we can handle and stuff that we can do. This is not true. The reality is he continually gives us stuff that's beyond our ability to handle. And the only way we can do it is by depending on him. And he gives us a supernatural ability. It's called the power of his Holy Spirit. And the reality is that we fail all the time. We like sin more than God. We don't trust. We lack faith. We, we miss opportunities to share the gospel because we're ashamed, because we want to do our thing, because we're selfish, because of all kinds of stuff. That's just candid reality of who we are. It's really encouraging when you think about what this passage, what's happening here and who he's talking to. He's talking to a group of guys. One of them's gone because he killed himself. The other 11 are proven failures, which is really encouraging to me, actually. Because you, you got one guy, he's their leader, Peter, right? He's the outspoken one. He's the kind of the spokesperson for the group. Um, given the opportunity to have his boldest witness ever, he passionately denies to a little girl, he passionately denies that he ever knew Jesus. He's a failure. And you look at the other guys. They've got a nickname. If you read the Gospel of Luke, it's you of little faith. So whenever Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, like you of little faith, you, not get, you, not, you don't get it. They constantly don't understand what's happening. So these guys are going to be like the pillars of the church, right? These are the guys that, that Christ is going to depend on to, to spread his revolution throughout the world. These are the guys that they're going to surround the teachings of these guys that don't quite get it all the time, that are of little faith, that are failures, given the opportunity all but one, John, abandon him at the cross. Thomas, he's got ten buddies, they come to him, and they say, listen, what happened? Jesus came back, we saw him. They've got no reason to lie to him. And Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I see it. They've all got issues. And you know what's encouraging to me is it seems like those are the kinds of people that God chooses to use. And that's the kind of people we are. I know it's the kind of person I am. And you look at what he gives is he gives the Holy Spirit. And then you look at what the Holy Spirit does. And I'll give you a little, I jotted down a little survey this week. We'll survey the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, when he first comes, gives them an ability to speak in languages they've never been trained to speak in. Wouldn't that have been awesome, Grant, Jody, to not have to go to language school, just stand out there and it just comes out, Right? That's what happens. The Holy Spirit does that. This unique, one-of-a-time experience, one-of-a-time uh, experience for the church, where they start to proclaim these languages that are known languages, not babbling. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. He gives them boldness to speak, because naturally, we're fearful. We lack courage. We lack faith. And so Acts chapter 4, verse 31, you want to jot that down? He gives them boldness. Throughout the entire book, there's multiple verses, he anoints people for special challenges. Here's a couple verses you can look up. Chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 55. Chapter 13, verse 9. You can look them up later on your own. We see he uses the Holy Spirit and the role of salvation. We see he uses the Holy Spirit to heal people. You see both things happen in the life of Saul in Acts chapter 9 and verse 17. He's credited with growing the church numerically, multiple times. They're they're called the updates, the uh, progress reports of the church throughout the book of Acts. One of them is in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. He grows them numerically. He directs people to special opportunities. One story is in Acts chapter 10, verse 19. He forbids them from other opportunities that actually appear to be good opportunities. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. He calls people to special missions. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. He directs the church leaders regarding doctrinal decisions. Acts chapter 15, verse 28. You can come to the second service if you missed any of those. But you see the work of the Holy Spirit is a theme through this book too because it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that any of this stuff happens. It's the promised Holy Spirit that comes. You know what? The Holy Spirit's still working today and still doing all that stuff. Acts chapter 2, wait a minute, what about that? You said it was unique, one of a time. He still works in unique, one of a time, one of a kind kind of ways now today. And anybody who tells you that they don't, I just say, well, show me the verse that says that. 
And let me tell you something. There are entire theological systems set up to explain to you why the Holy Spirit doesn't do what the Holy Spirit did in the Scriptures. There's no verse that says that. And so there are people that believe that that's true. I don't believe that's true. And we don't believe that's true as a church, as a whole. We believe that the Spirit still does what the Spirit did in the Scriptures. And the Spirit still changes lives. The Spirit still, let me see what it said, directing, guiding, anointing people for challenges, healing, saving, giving special opportunities, stopping people from other opportunities, calling to special missions, regarding leaders for doctrinal decisions. We believe all that stuff still happens. And we see it happen. I mean, just in the time that we've been a church, I, I've, we've seen people healed. I remember praying with a community group over a woman one time. She had a stroke. I'm not saying every time you pray for somebody, they get healed. We prayed over a woman one time, brain damage. She was home a couple days later. Just God still heals people. I had a guy in the lobby last week say to me, I love this church. I was thinking, I love this church too. Why are you telling me this? You know, I didn't even ask the question. He said, my 80-year-old mom trusted Christ at this church. Still saving people. Still healing people. Still saving people. Still directing people. Still guiding people. He's still real. And you know what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have him. That should be encouraging. You don't have to do some special prayer seance to get him. You don't have to be some special level of holiness to reach the place where the Holy Spirit actually works in your life. It says when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, and you also were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, that's the common belief, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Now you can quench him, you can grieve him. He is a person. It's a relationship. But he is there. And he will do all kinds of work in your life. And it's the only way you can possibly be the witness that God's called you to be. See, that's your role. That's your part in God's church. You all have a part in God's church if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And God has a plan for his church. And that's what this verse is all about. God has a plan for his church. That's what verse 8 is. It's the plan. That you will receive power. That's how it's going to happen. That's the enablement. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. And here's where it will happen. In Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this is really the outline of the entire book. Talk about a plan. If you read the book, and you can write this down too if you want, read chapters 1 through 7. It's the evangelization of Jerusalem. Read chapters 8 through 12. It's the evangelization of Judea and Samaria. Read chapters 13 through the end of the book, chapter 28. It's the evangelization to the ends of the earth, to the place of Rome. But it's interesting the way the book ends. Because Paul's on trial, and we don't find the outcome of his trial. Implying the story's still being written, and it's still being written today. Because Rome isn't the end of the world. It was the end of some civilization for them and what they knew. And America hadn't heard the gospel yet. They were closer to Madagascar than they were to America. There was a lot of people, and there still are a lot of people, that need to know about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. And that's God's plan for the church. It's the evangelization, it's worldwide evangelization of every person, of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every person would hear and have the opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. And that's our role. And it happens by who we are. As God transforms us, as he transforms us, we can't help but talking about it. And he gives us the power and the ability to do so and given circumstances and opportunities that he guides us in and some opportunities that he guides us away from. And as he does it, where does he want us to do it at? Well, some people try to make this passage real practical by talking about Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, like they're concentric circles, and that's a really a practical way to talk about this. Jerusalem, that's where these men were at at this moment. So Jerusalem is where your home base is. It's where are you? Where you live, where you move, where you have your being, where you work? Who's your family? 
It's where you live. It's where you work. Who are the coworkers? Who are the people you bump shoulders with? Who are your neighbors? It's those people. It's what we've talked about since we started this church. We talk about, you know, influence the world for Christ, connect people to Jesus for life change, who's your one, pray for your one, serve your one, you know, care for your one. All that language, it's all the same thing. And so why we pray that we pray, God, give us eyes to see people the way you see people. And you look at the scriptures and you see how Jesus sees people as helpless and hurting, like sheep without a shepherd. It's those people that we read those lines from. I'm lost. Help me. It's that the people are crying that out. They don't always say those words so clearly, but people are crying that out. That we would see that in the way that people live and the way that they act. When they do obnoxious stuff, they're crying out for your help. When people offend you and hurt you and do things, it's because they're hurt. It's because of their pain. Is that we would start to see people that way. But we wouldn't just have eyes to see them. We don't just pray that as a church. We don't just pray that God will help us see this stuff. That he give us a heart to actually do something about it. And so we try to meet tangible needs in our community. We try to bring, come to the place where we can actually present the ultimate need is Jesus Christ. Because by doing so, we save lives. Not just physical lives, souls of people. We're not here so people can have better marriages and better finances and all that stuff. We ultimately want them to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the power of the gospel and the salvation. That's what we want people to know. And that starts in your Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. And so that'd be like North America, you know, North Carolina, North America, maybe you'd say, and the ends of the earth. It's everybody. You want everybody to know. It's the people that you see in the news from India. It's people from Uganda. It's our missionaries in Panama. It's our missionaries in Madagascar. It's, it's all over. It's everywhere. You want everyone to know this because it's so radically transformed your life. And that's your part. So what role will you play? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We come to you humbly unable to accomplish the task that you've given us to accomplish. Will you please Give us an anointing of your spirit to do what you desire for us to do this week. God, give us a Monday anointing. Give us an opportunity to fulfill the challenges and the callings that you have for us with our family and our homes, around the world, wherever you would have us be. God, will you put on our hearts burdens for people that need to know you that are in our spheres of influence, whether they're family members and loved ones, whether they're people we haven't met yet, clerks, whoever they are, waiters, waitresses, co-workers, somebody we're going to do a business deal with. God, will you just make it obvious to us? Maybe through them doing something uh, that cries out for help or maybe just from us seeing something that we've seen in ourselves. Father, will you make our hearts sensitive to you? Will you, God, work in the midst of anyone here that might not be a witness, that might be churched, that might be even on the membership of this church that's not a believer, that somehow they shared the right facts? Father God, will you work in our hearts? Will you use us to be the church you desire for us to be? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.